You're listening to the Pops on Hops podcast, where we listen to some pops, drink a little hops, and I get to hang out with my pop. I'm Abigail Hummel. And I'm Barry Hummel, and we want to welcome you to episode 67, in which I got to choose the album, and Abigail got to rummage around and get us the beer. I chose the seminal album by Alanis Morissette, Jagged Little Pill from 1995. Abigail, what are we doing with the beer today? Well, as you know, Dad, it's Black Friday. And so Uh, we are doing our traditional leftovers episode where we drink seasonal beers from breweries that we have reviewed earlier this season. So we will have a beer from Ginger's Revenge in Asheville, North Carolina, one from Daft Cow Brewery in Alashua, Florida, one from Glasstown Brewing Co. in Millville, New Jersey, and one from Toll Road Brewing Company in Ocoee, Florida. So we have uh, quite a seasonal selection today. We're going to start with the Ginger's Revenge Fall Mm. Harvest flavor brewed with cinnamon and pumpkin. I am extremely excited for this one. And Ginger's Revenge, by the way, this is uh, this is the first brewery that's in the Three Timers Club because we had Ginger's Revenge with the jukebox episode with uh, France Pants. And then we had the extra one when Laurie was here doing the Appalachian beer tour. And then it was, once again, Laurie who was kind enough to obtain this seasonal beer for us. Each of these beers, by the way, has a story of how we got it. So that's a good one that Laurie went back to North Carolina and got us another Ginger's Revenge acquisition while she was in the North Carolina state. She got herself one too, and I um I'm trying to convince her to leave a voice message with her review. <laughs> oh, cool. So should we crack open this ginger's revenge fall harvest cinnamon and pumpkin ginger beer? I am ahead of you already. I've got it cracked open and poured into my glass. It's a very pale kind of color. It's very sedimentatious. Sedimentatious, she says. Well, I didn't pour the very bottom in. Maybe I'll do that. Yeah, I see what you're saying now. How about that? It was all in the bottom of the bottle. I assume that's the cinnamon. Maybe. Let's look to see if there's any other notes on the bottle. No other notes, but the ingredients are interesting to read. Um, As with all Ginger's Revenge, um, this has habanero peppers in it. So let me read the ingredients. Water, cane sugar, ginger, pumpkin, citrus juices, grapefruit juice, habanero peppers, cinnamon basil, anise hyssop, spices, and yeast. And a lot of those are organic ingredients, according to the note. Yes. And the pumpkin is organic. Yes, as is the ginger and the sugar. Excellent. The water is not listed as organic. Well, that's too bad. (laughs) Yeah, I wonder what GMOs they're using in the water. (laughs) Reclaimed water, maybe. (laughs) All right. Cheers. Cheers. As always, good stuff. As always. I've yet to have a ginger's revenge I didn't like. I think I'm getting more of the spices than the pumpkin. I am too. And it's a good mix with the habanero. Again, as always, because the habanero is not incredibly prominent till a little bit late in the sip. No, it the habanero mixed with the ginger is what gives it the burn. And the burn hits you late in the sip. Yeah, always. And it's just kind of um like a like a little extra interesting sensation that you get at the end of the sip. But yeah, I agree with you. I am not getting the pumpkin very prominently. I'm hoping as it warms up, we'll get a little more of that pumpkin. But yeah, as of now, I mean, it's Ginger's Revenge. It's going to be delicious no matter what. <laughs> and we are subtly experts on Ginger's Revenge, I think. <laughs> They've been such a frequent uh, well. sample on our on our third season here like they have uh, dominated the board this year this is the fourth one we've tried and of course i personally have tried a fifth off mike i didn't get the memo that i was allowed to do that well because you're saving them for moscow mules i'm not doing that 
You know, what's funny, we might have another bonus episode this season, if we can get our act together, to have those Moscow Mules, in which case it would be four different episodes. So let me tell you a little bit about this album and Alanis Morissette. Yes, please. I didn't know if you were aware of this, but she was a teenage singer. She had a career in Canada and was more in the sort of uh, Debbie Gibson kind of model. I'm using a reference from the era just before Alanis Morissette hit the scene. And she had two early albums in Canada, not distributed in the United States, on a two-record deal that she had with a Canadian company. And they were a little bit more pop, you know, kind of young teenage adult performances, more in that sort of Britney Spears model, right? Uh, from something that a reference you might get better than Debbie Gibson. But then she connected with somebody who suggested that she should probably move. She was from Ottawa, I believe. And the suggestion was that she should probably move to Toronto, which had a little bigger music scene. And along the way, she uh, met the person who basically co-wrote this album with her. And that was uh, songwriter Glenn Ballard. And he was really impressed with her talent. And so they started working on an album and nobody would pick it up except for Maverick Records. And I think Maverick Records was Madonna's label or is Madonna's label from that time. Wow. So they picked up this album, Jagged Little Pill, which was technically her third studio album, but clearly the most massive hit that she had in her career. It's the one that really put her on the map. It's way more of a rock, almost a post-grunge kind of album in a lot of ways. And I think the thing that really underscored the album that made it such a touchstone with people was that it was one of the first albums written from a really unique perspective of a woman. The lyrics really get inside the psyche of a young woman in relationships, in just her place in the world, in the things that go on around her and her reaction to them. And I'll say in a lot of ways in a male dominated world that she's reacting to that in a lot of the songs. And the first single, which is the second track we're going to talk about tonight, You Ought to Know, was the thing that just exploded on the scene. And I think that song, I shouldn't say more than others on the album, but that song in particular struck a raw chord with a lot of people from the perspective that it took from a woman's point of view coming out of a breakup. And it put her on the map. And on the back of that single, there were six singles released from this album over about a year and a half. Wow. This album sold, I think, 33 or 35 million copies worldwide, about half of those in the United States. She's continued to write music. She had an album out uh, recently, um, which I think was more of a concept instrumental album. Her music's all over the place. Like the follow-up to this was more of like psychedelic pop. I have two or three of her other albums, and they're all interesting, but I don't think any of them is as concise in its storytelling as this one. This one just hit it out of the park in my opinion, on almost all the tracks on the album. And I have always liked this album for that reason. You know, we talked about this a little bit when we talked about the Tori Amos album, where it was from a unique perspective of a young woman. But in the Tori Amos album, I felt like you were dealing with a lot of trauma without a lot of the empowerment. Not that she wasn't empowered in some ways, but it was less evident. It was more about sort of her emotional reaction to the trauma, where I feel like here there is a, how am I responding to it in a much more empowered way? And that's why Of the two albums, I feel like this one is more about the strength of a young woman in the face of all this adversity in her life, mostly put upon her by men. There is a song on here that I think is parental trauma. There's a song on here Mm -hmm. that I think is religious trauma. Mm -hmm. But how she handles that and how she resolved that by the end of each song, I think is very interesting. So I love the writing on this. Now, that in part is her co-writer, Glenn Ballard. They just really got into the psyche of a young woman. I'm sure most of it personal and really efficiently told those tales. So 
this is one of my favorite albums. I, I love this album. And it, one of the reasons I gave it to you is I, I debated it because there are many tracks on here I'm sure you're familiar with, mostly because there were so many of them that were high-profile singles with great videos attached to them. But I felt it was worth discussing it in the timeline because this was um, probably the second album or third album that I listened to in these years that made me really like to find the albums that featured female voices and female perspectives. And I don't have a ton of those. So when I find a good one, I really, really love it. And so this is a really good album for me. Yeah, I agree with everything you said, pretty much. The album officially has 13 tracks. There is a hidden track on the final track, but the final track is also a different mix of a previous track. So We'll have 14 clips, but there really are only 13 independent songs. I knew four of them, so that's not a terrible ratio. I knew You Ought to Know, I knew Hand in My Pocket, I knew Head Over Feet, and I knew Ironic. And I think all four of those were singles, I'm pretty sure. And three of them ended up in my top three. (laughs) So I'm the singles girl today. And I have two of those in my top three. And one of the more obscure singles is the other one. Okay. And I didn't even know it was a single, (laughs) to be honest with you. I'd forgot it was even a single. That's funny. But it's hard not to pick singles on your favorite where half the songs are singles. And by the way, iconic songs. Iconic, total bangers. And I can't wait to talk about them. I totally, totally heard the comparison you're talking about to Tori Amos. This album very much gave me similar vibes to that Tori Amos album. You talked about the difference in the songs being an emotional response to trauma versus a public response to trauma, I guess, or telling someone off for what they've done, which is a lot in Jagged Little Pill. I think another major difference is in the specificity of the writing. When I say specificity, it's not Tuesday on the island. Like we, we're not getting that specific. Right. But these lyrics are relatively free of metaphor. There are metaphors, but the metaphors are very easy to understand what she is talking about. Whereas I felt in the Tori Amos album, a lot of the lyrics were very obscure. You really only had a sense of what you were talking about. Whereas I know the entire story of every one of these songs. I think that is fantastic because you really understand the factual information of what she's going through in addition to getting her unique emotional perspective on it and her actionable response to it. So I thought that was amazing. The other comparison that I thought of, and this is really because I have this core memory of when I was a kid and we were on an airplane and I was reading the in-flight magazine and the cover story was about Avril Lavigne and the opening paragraph of the story was like, think of a Canadian pop rock star who's hard edged and her lyrics are about what it's like to be a young woman and blah, blah, blah. I bet you're thinking of Alanis Morissette, but I'm actually talking about Avril Lavigne. They're both Canadian. Avril Lavigne was popular in the early 2000s. I think her first album's from 2003. I didn't look that up. And 
I didn't know Alanis Morissette. I knew Avril Lavigne. I had her album. And so I I remember having a conversation with you on the plane about Alanis Morissette and Avril Lavigne. And so I have since heard several of the songs on this album, but they really do have a similar sound, especially on Avril Lavigne's first album. She did get a little poppier later on. But on her first album, she was exactly like you said, like a post-grunge, late teens rock artist and yeah i kept hearing snippets of that in this album which i thought was really fun given that you know they're both canadian and according to that cover story on the in-flight magazine anyway avril lavigne was sort of the next generation or stepping into the shoes of alanis morissette i think there's probably a lot of young female artists in the 2000s who can take alanis morissette as an influence avril lavigne certainly among them you can't ever say oh she was the first to do something right we always joke about that yeah but in my experience you know the way you know i was picking up and collecting music over time tori amos and alanis morissette were the two that really set this mold for me they probably had influences too and the other thing i want to say is maybe that you referenced the lyrics on the tori amos album being more kind of ethereal and mystical and metaphor driven. And maybe that's why when you walk away from that album, you think about, you know, understand there's trauma and all you get is kind of the emotional read on it because there is a lack of specificity. Mm-hmm. And in this album, you know, very clearly what's happened, what her opinion is and what she's got to say about it. Absolutely. And that's why it feels more like there's more empowerment to me in this album than there was in the Tori Amos album. Yeah. So while I was listening to this album, I was consistently surprised and impressed. I mean, I don't know that the 90s were a feminist time, but it feels like a lot of progress has been made since then. And it feels like the things she's saying in this album are a little before their time. She makes a lot of comments that I think a lot of women are still pointing out today. I'll point those out and we get to the songs and She's got some great one-liners. She's got some really, really interesting observations that are not necessarily unique to me as they are still part of the feminist discourse. But for them to be said in such a concise way in the 90s, I think, is what I was really surprised and impressed by. Basically, I love this album. (laughs) It gets stuck in my head so much. I At work, I'll be humming it. I'll be walking to my car and I'll be humming it. It just gets stuck in my head. Despite the fact that her voice is insanely amazing. It's so good. It's a very singable album. Like, you're not going to hit the notes she hits and you're not going to sound as good. But it's a very melodic, easy to sing album. Her phrasing is not super crazy. Right. Her lyrics fit the meter of the music. She's not making sentences last two or three musical lines like some of the other albums we've covered recently. It's on beat, it's melodic, and it's easy to understand what she's saying. I didn't really even have to read the lyrics of a lot of these songs to hear the words she was saying. Yeah. She's easy to hear. She's It's mixed well, very clear. And you're exactly right. I went through the exercise of putting the lyric sheet out and going through it like I always do. But listen, I've been listening to this album for a long time. I didn't need to do that. I know what every song is about. Mm -hmm. There's no denying that. You're not sifting through the rubble to try to figure out what we're talking about in these songs. Absolutely right. I did want to mention that we had a nice experience a couple weeks back. Uh, We saw Mike Mills 
do a wonderful performance with a symphony orchestra in Fort Myers, Florida. First, the symphony played orchestral versions of REM songs. I think they played uh, 11 or 12 songs. And then after the intermission, uh, Mike Mills came out with a fabulous violinist. They had written basically sort of a suite of music for rock band and violin is basically what it was pitched as. And Mike Mills played the bass and the piano during that. And they had a couple of REM tunes that they did with that arrangement of the musicians, but they played in front of the symphony. And the only reason I bring that up is because we were in the same space together. I'd assigned you this album. And yes, you were singing and humming songs <laughs> the whole weekend we were together. I know, illegally. And I had to keep saying, ah, don't give me nah, any nah, and normally I'm the one doing that to you. <laughs> yes. And so that was very, very cool because I, I I, had already figured out when we were together that this is going to be a good album. She likes this album because she's singing a lot of stuff already. And the other thing that was funny was while we were there, I think we took a picture of this. Maybe I'll put it up on the website. The poster was up for the Jagged Little Pill musical that they're going to do in that Performing Arts Center in Fort Myers, yeah. uh, which was the Barbara Mann Performing Arts Center, which was on a college campus. And I'm blanking on it. It was a smaller uh, college over in Fort Fort Myers, but it was what a great show. And it was really, really interesting and fun. And we were at, we had great seats because as soon as I saw it, I bought the tickets. I think we were in the fourth row. Yeah, we were. So I think we were 30 feet away from Mike Mills, which is awesome. Yeah, that... That was such an amazing show. And I, I remembered you tweeted after you bought the tickets at Mike Mills, like, oh, my daughter's so excited to see you. Yes. And he tweeted back, uh, I won't be playing any REM songs, just so you know what you're getting yourself into. He ended up playing two REM songs because as part of his concerto that he wrote for rock band and violin, Night Swimming was one of the songs in that concerto. So he played piano for Night Swimming. And then the encore song was Losing My Religion. Which was fabulous, by the way. Which was just amazing. So yeah, we did end up getting Mike Mills playing two REM songs, which I wasn't expecting that. That wasn't why I was there, but it was simply magnificent. Both of those songs, Night Swimming and, and Losing My Religion, Night Swimming in particular was Mike Mills on the piano and it was the violinist whose name I looked up, Robert McDuffie, uh, basically did the vocal yeah. on the violin. And it, so it was just a, essentially the two of them. I think the drummer may have hit a few things off on the side, but it, but it was essentially the two of them. And it was a very similar thing when they did Losing My Religion and they did it with the full symphony behind them and they essentially played, the, the vocal was essentially the violinist. Yeah. And then again, when I did Losing My Religion, the whole time they were up there, there was a uh, mandolin sitting off the side, electric mandolin. And they did the whole show. Not touching the mandolin. They never touched the mandolin. And then um, obviously they come out to do the encore. Well, they all they all left the stage and mom leans over to me and she goes, there has to be an encore. They didn't even use that teeny tiny guitar. <laughs> and I said, well, that's a mandolin, but excellent point. <laughs> and she was right. So what do you think? Should we get into the track by track? I'm ready for some music, man. Let's do it. I am too. It's been a couple hours since I last listened to this album. So I'm getting the shakes. <laughs> okay. So let's start with track one. All I really want. Why are you so petrified of silence? Here, can you handle this? Did you think about your bills, your ex, your deadlines? Or when you think you're gonna die? Or did you long for the next distraction?
som pilsnæren Og blæster vejen der gammel ground And all I really want is a wavelength oh, 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 oh. I played the clip I did because that part where she cuts to silence is my favorite part of any song on this album. I think it's genius. It's so meta. The line is, why are you so petrified of silence? Here, can you handle this? And then it completely cuts to silence for a beat and a half, maybe. And then she comes back in and says, did you think about your bills, your ex, your deadlines? When you think you're going to die or did you long for the next distraction? There are so many jokes and memes um, in my generation and the younger generation about not being able to be alone with our thoughts. Like we have constantly had content playing in our ears or we've been reading, you know, anything to keep us from self-reflection, right? (laughs) (laughs) And it's not, at least for myself, necessarily about self-reflection. It's more about, oh, God, the world is very terrible right now. <laughs> like, I long for the next distraction. That's a very true statement. And so I think the message is on point of that part in the song. I think the cutting to complete silence in the middle of the song to make the point is just genius. I love that part. And that's the part I couldn't stop singing when we were in Fort Myers. <laughs> That you were like, ah, no, 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 enough. That's right. Stay silent. <laughs> exactly. So I think this is a perfect opening track for this album. I think it is a perfect thesis statement. She describes not having her feelings hurt necessarily, but she describes this person who is talking to her in a demeaning way. And then she uses that to describe in great detail her inner space, you know, her inner state and what she wants from the world or from this person or from herself. And I think all the things that she says she wants in this song are touched on in some aspect on the songs later in this album. She, you know, she talks about deliverance. There's, as you mentioned before, a a religious trauma song in here. Justice. There's a whole song about her sort of career experiences with men in here and how she didn't experience justice uh, in her experiences with men in her career. So I think this is a perfect opening track. It's not in my top three, but I love it. It gets stuck in my head all the time. And that one piece of it that I played is my favorite piece of music on this whole album. To me, it's a song, it's sort of an inner monologue about a woman who has some insecurities. And I think the genius of the line that you love where it goes to silence is it completely turns the tables and proves that the other person has just as many insecurities as she does, mm-hmm. which I think is a great twist. And and that occurs maybe two thirds of the way through the song, that, that line with the silence, which is where the song kind of turns on the dime. And you realize that I was talking about how she becomes empowered in a lot of the songs. And that's her moment of empowerment here is like, let me put the same thing on you. And I think it's really, really smart. This was the sixth and final single released in November of 1996. It peaked at number 14 on the Billboard Modern Rock tracks. It did not do very well as a single, but at this point it was six singles into a, an album that had been on the, yeah, you know, been rocketing up the charts for, you know, about a year and a half. And it's my second favorite song on the album. Wow. Yeah. And I totally agree with you. It's, um, you didn't start the song from the beginning, but the opening riff of this to open the album is really, really good.
and it sets the tone for the album and the writing sets the tone for the album it is the thesis statement of the album exactly right because it's a lot of inner monologue throughout the album mm -hmm. this is a great example of that so yeah i really like this song this is the one that i said oh i picked a song out that i thought oh this is a good one because this is not a single and it turns out it was the final <laughs> single that i'd forgotten about <laughs> I think when I gave the album, I said, there's at least five singles on the album. And this is the one I wasn't thinking of, but I really, really like it. Yeah, it's great. She does this a lot. She includes direct quotes from the men she's interacting with in these songs, and they always infuriate me. So <laughs> it's very effective to use their words directly because you know what? Oftentimes they make the point on their own. <laughs> she doesn't even need to comment on it. <laughs> I don't mean to pick you apart, you see, but I can't help it what <laughs> who said that to another person that's just pure evil so amazing thesis statement for the album all right that brings us to track two i think we'll do track two and then we'll rate this first beer you got it track two has got to be a single i'm certain of it because i had heard it before and that is you ought to know and i just I want to warn our listeners, this clip has a swear in it. This is the only clip that I chose that has a swear in it. But Ooh, we're going there tonight, are we? Yeah, I know. I, I, I had to. You seem very well. Things look peaceful. I'm not quite as well. I thought you should know. You forget about me, Mr. Duplicity. I hate to bug you in the middle of dinner. It was a slap in the face. How quickly I was replaced. And I am thinking of me when you fuck her. my third favorite song on the album. This is one of two songs where I'm not rooting for the main character. And that's because while she was clearly wronged by this other person and has a lot of feelings about it, the clip that I played, she shows up at his house during dinner is what it sounds like. I hate to bug you in the middle of dinner. I pictured him at a restaurant, but yeah, sure. I get it. Which I would never do, and I find it hard to justify that behavior. You know, it's not like let it go. That wouldn't be my advice. But my advice would not be show up in the middle of his dinner with his new partner because that makes you look like the bad guy. And you don't want to look like the bad guy. You want him to look like the bad guy. But I think she, in a lot of ways, comes across as the crazy one, quote unquote, in this song. And I hate the trope of the crazy ex-girlfriend 
I think it's really ugly. And in 99% of cases, it's not true. I think men like to deem a lot of women's behavior as crazy when it's just a reasonable reaction to the way they've been treated. I think showing up to a date that your ex is having with their new partner is not crazy, but I think, you know, that's a reasonable interpretation of that action. And I don't want Ms. Morissette to be doing anything that's going to make a man feel even a tiny bit justified in calling her the crazy ex-girlfriend. So I don't love the actual behaviors that were taken in this song, but it's such a banger. Her emotion is so evident in her vocal performance. You feel everything she's feeling. And on top of that, her voice sounds amazing in this song. So I can't help but love it. And it's my third favorite. So it's my favorite song on the album. Nice. And I'll go back and put it in sort of time perspective. I understand what you're saying about, oh, she comes across as, I always viewed this as the one song on the album where she's outright angry. Oh, she's definitely angry. Right. I used to think about this album as, oh, this is from the perspective of an angry woman. And it's not. It's really not. It's from a perspective of a young woman. And then this particular one, the emotion is anger. And there's other emotions and other things in the other songs. But because this was the first single, this was the thing that exploded out of the gate, put the album on the map. And part of the reason for that is because in that time frame, in the mid-90s, women weren't right in this point of view. Yeah. So the fact that she's you know a little angry in this particular song fascinated me. It didn't make me shy away from the song or think of her like I was rooting for her because you could feel that raw emotion in her performance. Yes, she's angry, but I understand why she's angry. Definitely. And that's why she doesn't come across as the crazy woman. She comes across as somebody who's justifiably angry. Now, it's interesting. You keep saying like to show up at their dinner or follow them on a date. And I never viewed it like it was thought. I just saw it like they're living in the same space. So like out and about and she bumps into them at a restaurant and then walks up and says something. Not that she was following them around town or anything like that. I never looked at it like she was stalking the couple. So because I didn't think of that, maybe that tones it down a little bit for me. But no, I think this is a fabulous song. And it really exploded on the scene in 1995 because of that writing and because of that emotion and perspective. And that's why uh, I couldn't help but put it as my favorite song. It's the one that brought me to the album. Yeah. And justifiably angry is the right word. But there's a difference between having a justifiable emotional reaction to something and then engaging in a behavior that is unwise or not socially acceptable. I hear what you're saying that she, they just kind of bumped into each other. I guess for me, the reason why I thought she kind of tracked them down is because of the intensity of the anger. Like she says a lot of pretty dark things in here. I mean, the very first line that really confronted me with how angry she was, was and every time you speak her name, does she know how you told me you'd hold me until you died? Till you died. But you're still alive. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> it's so good. But that was the first line where I was like, oh, my God. Like, she would rather he have died than left her to be with another person. Oh, I didn't think of it that way. I just thought she was like poking him in the ribs. Not that she was rooting for him to be dead, but that she was throwing it back in his face that he wasn't dead. I, at every one of these lyrics, gave her the benefit of the doubt. And maybe that's because I was rooting for her. And you read the lyrics with a fresh set of eyes or heard the song with a fresh set of eyes. And so your interpretation of the lyrics was always looking at the darker part of what they could mean versus the part where I was kind of pulling for. I think that might be the subtle difference there, but it's such an amazing song. 
It is. And it's my third favorite. And the fact that I have issues with the narrator in this one <laughs> doesn't affect how much I love this song. Here's ultimately the reality of it. Like, I think this song sounds like the mindset of a man a little bit. Like, I've never known a woman to be this jealous and vindictive. It's always men that kill their ex-lovers because they'd rather them be dead than with someone else, you know? This sounds to me like the mindset of a man who has been spurned much more so than the women I know and how how they would behave, not think. I'm sure many women have thought these thoughts before, but in terms of the action taken as a result of these thoughts, like that seems more like man behavior to me. And I'll just say that what you just said underscores why when you hear this coming out of the radio in 1995, it does turn everything on its head and it is such a standout. For sure. Nobody expected to hear this from a woman. Yeah. It's like nobody expected women to have complex thoughts. Yeah. I, I'm saying that tongue in cheek, but I'm saying like all of a sudden a woman says the same things that a guy might say and everybody's like, oh my God, look at this. She says it later. She gets put on a pedestal in a song later. It's that mm -hmm. kind of thing of like, I don't want to be there. I'm afraid of heights or whatever the line is. But the joke of it is the whole thing's about male dominated world, women put on pedestals and she's breaking that trope in every song. This one obviously breaks it more than most of the other ones and puts the angry woman thing in play. Mm -hmm. The only one where she's angry. But that is what makes the writing of this album so amazing, especially in that time frame. Well, I'm running out of Ginger's Revenge. Speaking of revenge. I'm getting close. <laughs> yeah, speaking of revenge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's rate this Ginger's Revenge. As it's warmed up, the pumpkin hasn't really popped much more. No. Yeah, I think it's a really solid beverage, but I'm going to give it a 375. I think some of their other ones drink better than this one. I completely agree with you. I really wish that the pumpkin had been a little more prominent, especially because this is our seasonal leftovers episode. And those are the flavors we're focusing on. So I'm also going to give it a 3.75. I've yet to dislike a Ginger's Revenge. This is no exception. It's delicious. It's extremely easy to drink. Very gingery, very spicy. By that, I mean both that it has a lot of spices and that it has a little kick of heat from the habanero. I just wish it had been a little more pumpkin-y because that was what was advertised to us. All right. What are we pulling out of the cooler? Let's move on to our second beer. This is Daft Toberfest from Daft Cow Brewery in Alachua, Florida. And this is their German-style Marzen. We've had a handful of Oktoberfest beers this year already on our bonus episode, and we're getting another one. So the story of procuring this beer is when I was up recording our last episode. Yes, we took a little drive. We took a side trip up to Daft Cow to poke around and see what they had. They didn't have a pumpkin beer. We were looking for pumpkin beer specifically, but they had the Daftoberfest. And I thought, you know, we should give them another shout out. That was a great place. We did. We had a great time out there. It's a really cool space. I'm a Daft Cow fan. So this is a little bit of a darker kind of reddish color. And it is a Marzen style. I do like that the can label has that like pretty classic blue and white checkered pattern. That's like the flags um, at an Oktoberfest tent. I find that very charming. This is a really, really good Marzen. It is very good. It's extremely roasty for a Marzen. I'm not sure I've had a Marzen that has quite this level of roastiness to it. It's not coffee. Like, it doesn't taste of coffee. Mm -mm. It truly does taste like 
roasted malt, which I assume is the reason for the roastiness, because it tastes like grain. I mean, it tastes grainy and roasty. And I find that to be a very unique flavor combination. So I'm I'm enjoying this one. Yeah, it's not overly sweet. Oh, no, no. I would say not sweet at all. All right. Well, let's enjoy this while we uh, whip through some I want music, please. Music, please. Music, I gotta please. Get these songs back in my head. So track three is called Perfect. clip I did on this one because I think this section of the song has the most insight into an abusive parent's mindset, which is really interesting and confronting, frankly. And I think it shows a great deal of not just self-reflection, right? Reflecting on the trauma that she was the victim of at the hands of her parents. But also it shows a great deal of reflection on why her parents might have been this way in the first place. And it's not told from a particularly empathetic perspective. I mean, she sounds very angry and very emotional here. But I do think that having an understanding of the psyche of an abusive parent is probably helpful in understanding what you went through and the root causes of it and probably helpful for healing. I'm amazed that she was willing and able psychologically to explore that side of what she went through. And I think this is a really insightful song with genius lyrics and it's my least favorite song on the album. <laughs> it's at my bottom third. I have a minus sign next to it. First of all, the easy out would have been to take the bonus track and just call it your least favorite because sure, it, it, musically, it's a little bit of an outlier. I had three that I was I had put toward the bottom. Yeah, me too. This was one of the three. And the fact that lyrically, all the things that you just described are in it is why I didn't make it my least favorite. I thought the writing on this was really interesting, even though it's kind of a slower song. And it's re- coming off of the last song. The other thing that puts this toward the bottom, I think, is it's a placement issue. I'm not sure how you follow the last song with anything, but I'm just saying that you, if you're going to turn around, probably a slow song is not the best option here in the three slot after you ought to know. Completely agree. So the first time through, I put it at the bottom, almost instinctively just put it at the bottom because of that reaction. And I didn't determine what my least favorite was going to be. I just cut, put a minus sign next to it. But yeah, it's deep. It's a deep, deep song. And again, not physical abuse here, which is interesting, right? This is totally about emotional abuse. Yes. And you need to be perfect because I'm living vicariously through you. Yes. That's the really tortuous twist here is you got to be perfect because I wasn't. 
And that's just such a mean, mean, mean thing. Now, here's the interesting thing. We're assuming it's autobiographical. You can't write this level of emotion and have some kind of skin in the game. Mm -hmm. Her parents were teachers, for God's sake. Actually, her mom was a teacher and her father was a French teacher and ultimately a high school principal. Wow. So they were child educators. So if this is their... <laughs> This is their thing as educators. That really disturbs me. And by the way, they were it was an interesting couple. He was French and Irish descent, and he was a Catholic. I believe he was a Catholic. She attended Catholic school, so I, that's why I made that assumption. And she was of Hungarian and Jewish ancestry. Wow, what a mix, huh? Wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Yeah, so I'm waiting for you to write your song where you <laughs> unload all the trauma that we gave you. <laughs> oh, God. Don't get me started. The other reason I picked the clip I did is because I wanted to include the very last line of this song, which I think is the perfect summative line. We'll love you just the way you are if you're perfect. Right. <laughs> which I've thought about the concept of, you know, a parent's love a lot. And like, I truly believe that the only form of love that is truly unconditional is from a parent to a child. I don't think the reverse is unconditional. I don't think the love between two partners is unconditional. Like, I truly believe that. And the fact that she was robbed of even that unconditional love is so heartbreaking. And, and I want to go on record and say that we're assuming those things. This may be about a third party. We don't know. Yes, I'm sorry. I should have been saying the narrator. We don't know that this was really Alanis Morissette's experience. Yes. I think it's interesting if it is in the context that her parents were educators. But there's such a deep understanding of it in the lyrics that there has to be some personal connection. I don't think you write a song like this without a personal connection, whether that's somebody in your sphere or whether it's you yourself. You have to have this firsthand knowledge to dig this deep into this emotional abuse. Yeah, but... I agree with what you said. I, I think partially it's my least favorite because of placement. I think putting this in the number three slot was frankly a wild choice. Very weird placement. It is very slow. I tend not to like slower songs. And also, I think her voice doesn't sound as good on this song. She clearly has an emotional performance. You can hear the emotion. I believe the emotion is real. But the notes she's hitting, I don't know what it is. She clearly has an incredibly strong voice, but she's not hitting the notes on this song. And so I'm wondering if the notes are just not the perfect resonance for her particular voice. Um, and this is the only song on the album that I really bumped on that. I think she sounds incredible on all the other songs. Yeah, I think part of that is it's kind of a breathy performance in the verses. Up to the part you played, she doesn't really belt it out. And coming off the last song, it's such an obvious change. Yeah. So part of that's placement, like we said. Part of it's the performance itself. And part of it's the material. Remember, the part she belts out is the anger of the parent. Right. The performance works given the emotion of what you're dealing with in the song. I just don't think that performance, that soft sell of the verses is her best performance strategy, I guess. Even the soft parts are from the perspective of the parent. That's when the parent is trying to be the good guy. Right. And the part I played with the belting is when the parent finally sort of... Snaps. Snaps, exactly. And I don't even think the belting sounds especially good. But I think performance-wise, it matches what's happening as this person is yes. like unraveling and yelling. The emotions are spot on. The quality of the performance is spot on. I don't care for how her voice sounds. It's not one of the best performances on here. No. Yeah, I had it near the bottom too for the same reasons. All right, that takes us to track four. And track four is the aforementioned single, Hand in My Pocket.
happy I'm poor but I'm kind I'm short but I'm healthy I did know this song prior to this album for a silly reason. There's a silly TikTok that I will put the link in the show notes where the singer is makes up new lyrics to this song. It's very easy to do. It's a very standard pattern and a very standard template that she's given us for these lyrics. And the new lyrics are just silliness. <laughs> And it makes me laugh every time. And for a while, like when you assigned me this album, you know, I did a wordless rendition of this song because for a while, all I knew was the TikTok lyrics to it. (laughs) But the actual lyrics are excellent and they're not silly at all. It's a really insightful reflection of what it's like to be a young woman. I have to put in my usual plug under capitalism because there's a lot of references to her being tired but working she's underpaid she's kind of struggling in all of the i guess we would say quantitative measures of success in life she's broke she's poor she's short vertically challenged which is something i especially identified with <laughs> fully understand it but she's happy she's kind she's healthy she's hopeful that's really what matters right all of the adjectives she uses to describe herself there are positive well she's overwhelmed but other than that (laughs) so i think it's a really beautiful description of the state of a young 20-something woman trying to make her way in the world and it Gets a little repetitive, which is why it's not in my top three. But it's really fun to see how many adjectives she can use to describe herself. And it's a concise story. It's a well-told story of of how she's doing. I really, really like this song, even though it's not in my top three. So this was the second single released in October of 1995. It's paired up with a great music video. If you've not seen it, it's black and white, takes place in a parade and all the imagery revolves around this parade. It's the way I like music videos, right? There's not a performance really. It's just this one event and everything revolves around it and it's visually consistent. And so that's why I like it so darn much. It is my third favorite song on the album. Nice. You know, it in a very simple framing tells 
the complexity of day-to-day life, trying to survive in that and trying to find balance. Yeah. Yeah. Balance is a great word. Yeah. I'm this, but I'm that. You could look at that and go, well, is she ambivalent? I'm this, but I'm that. But it's not because of the thing you said. The things that she's down on are things that, you know, like money and this and that. And maybe that's not what really matters. Mm -hmm. The things that she's very positive about are all the things that you would associate with being happy. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's not ambivalence, but balance. Yeah, I'm underpaid, but I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I equate this to Dr. Seuss. Somebody challenged him to write a book that used only 50 vocabulary words. Was that Green Eggs and Ham? It was Green Eggs and Ham because things are repetitive, right? Repetitive, yeah. But the point of that is he tells a fascinating story with only 50 vocabulary words. And you get this here. It's almost poetry. Like this could be an E.E. Cummings poem. Oh, yeah. So it's simply written and complex all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's my third favorite song on the album. I love that writing style. So I'm essentially done. We're four songs in and I've given you my top three. I'll just sit back and relax and drink for the rest of the night. That's really wild. And we haven't heard your least favorite. So you're not done done. But No, I'm not done done. Two more comments I had on this one. I don't really get the hand in her pocket. Like, I don't understand that metaphor if it is meant to be a metaphor. And the other thing is, one of the very first things I bumped on in this song is that she seems to purposefully overlook opportunities for rhyming. And what I mean by that is, let me just read some examples to explain what I'm thinking of. What it all comes down to is that everything's going to be fine, fine, fine. Because I've got one hand in my pocket and the other one is giving a high five. That's fine. That's a slant rhyme. That's the first repetition of that piece of music in the song. Totally fine. Next verse, we get what it all comes down to is that everything's going to be quite all right because I've got one hand in my pocket and the other one is flicking a cigarette. Okay, cigarette and all right don't rhyme. But then in the next verse, we get what it all comes down to is that I haven't got it all figured out just yet because I've got one hand in my pocket and the other one is giving a peace sign. So the easiest thing to do to fix that rhyme is just switch. Everything is going to be fine. The other one's giving a peace sign and I haven't got it all figured out just yet. And the other one's flicking a cigarette. And because that would be such an easy swap, that leads me to believe it was intentional and plays into the I haven't got it all figured out just yet line of it, right? And also nothing else rhymes. None of the verses rhyme. So it fits the pattern of the song. And it goes back to my point about it being an E.E. Cummings poem, right? So I think this is intentional. And I think this is another way of hammering home the I haven't got it all figured out just yet. I have always thought that the hand in my pocket was a reference to that balance thing. You would stand there with one hand in your pocket. And what are you doing with your other hand? I'm giving a peace sign or I'm giving a high five or I'm whatever. As part of that balance rotation. That's how I looked at that. That makes sense. And by the way, it's always different. The course isn't repetitive, but it changes enough to advance the story. You know, I go back to the Dr. Seuss phenomenon. Not a complicated thing that's written here, but an incredibly complicated thing that's written here. Yeah. And with that, let's roll on to track five. Track five is called Right Through You. Oh, hello, Mr. Man. You didn't think I'd come back. You didn't think I'd show up with my army and ammunition. Right through you. I know right through you. 
ends cold. God, I love how this song ends. But that last like guitar screech, not screech. It's like when you can hear the chord changing with the fingers. Oh, that I love that guitar sound. And the fact that it ends cold with that is so cool to me. So this is the one I was talking about before with her interactions with men specific to her career. This is not in my top three, but this is probably my on the cusp song just because I think it's so incredibly insightful and the things she's saying about the experiences she's had in the music industry, I think are just very powerful. And it's things that I think many women experience in every workplace. It's not specific to the music industry. But the lyrics that I played include my favorite line on this song, which is, Now that I'm Miss Thing, now that I'm a zillionaire, you scan the credits for your name and wonder why it's not there. And that, from a purely lyrical standpoint, is pretty clearly about her musical career. But it applies to every woman who's ever had credit for something she's done taken by a man. Anecdotally, I feel that happens on a fairly regular basis. And I love that she's calling it out from her position as a relatively famous female singer, musical artist, not just singer. Well, let me put that in perspective for you, because... This is a little bit of foreshadowing. Right, because she wasn't Miss Thing at this point. No, this album made her Miss Thing. Yes. So it makes you wonder as she's writing the album, does she realize the sea change that's about to happen? I mean, that's a little bit of confidence to be making that prediction, right? But remember, she walked away from another label and another writing team to work with this guy to do this album. Mm-hmm. Did she have the insight to realize what a big deal this album was going to be for her in her career? I don't know the answer to that, but it's interesting that that one lyric that you played really sure makes it sound that way. Like she knows things are going to break big for her and that the old writing team or the old label that canned her is where that line about you're not in the credits anymore. Right, right. She got dumped. So even if she doesn't know she's going to be a big deal, she's referencing getting dumped by the other label or or having her contract not renewed or whatever it was that happened. By the way, write this down. So when Alanis When we have Alanis Morissette, yeah, 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 yeah. of course. You have a couple of questions for her. One is, Uh did you know that um, this is going to be such a big deal and you were going to be a, quote, zillionaire? Miss Thang. Now that she's Miss Thang. And the other question is, um, did you not rhyme those choruses in the last song intentionally? Question mark, question mark. As long as she's on the show. We got to get a list of questions. Two questions. Yeah, of course. Of course. You can't just have her on and go. We only have the one question then. (laughs) Nice chatting, right? We only need you for five minutes because we only have one question. (laughs) (laughs) That would be funny. Yeah, but the clip I played is not the only instance of very insightful lyrics on this song, obviously. You took me out to wine dine 69 me, but didn't hear a damn word I said. You took a long, hard look at my ass and then played golf for a while. Oh, yeah. No, it's it could be a waitress. It could be yes a job applicant at any job in America. Any woman right? in a professional setting, I'm certain, has experienced some degree of this behavior. Yeah, again, that's why it resonates so much because it's a unique perspective. Yeah, go back to 1995. There weren't many women writing songs with this caliber of social criticism in it. But 
I do want to say that part of the power of this song is, I believe, maybe, probably, it made some men, the well-intentioned ones, who didn't know these things were wrong or inappropriate, maybe it made them rethink their own behavior in the workplace and say, oh, yeah, this really is not appropriate behavior and change that behavior. Obviously, the ill-intentioned ones are not going to change their behavior, but it may have made some simply ignorant people rethink their own behavior. And I hope that that's what happened. I think by calling out specific behaviors like this, I think it has the opportunity to change behavior in the ones who want to make a change in their behavior. You certainly hope that people listening to this Although it's a subset of men who are going to pick up an Alanis Morissette album and enjoy it at face value for what it stands for. And those men are probably already on the right side of history. Well, yeah. And that was kind of my point, right? It's like the men who ultimately are on the right side of history, but don't have the information they need to get there. I mean, we all all have programming from our childhood because we all have our various privileges and everything. And the only way we can unlearn that stuff is to hear the perspectives of people who are different from us. Ignorance is an issue, but it's a fixable issue, right? If you want to fix it. The non-fixable issue is the motivation to care about these things and to want to fix your behavior. So This is Pops on Hops, where, where no, no one, one is safe. safe. All right. Should we rate our daft Toberfest? Oh my, yes. Let's Let's do that. I haven't drunk very much of it, unfortunately. Well, you don't have to do the whole tall boy thing, shorty. Vertically challenged. Hey, I'm short, but I'm healthy. Yeah! I feel drunk, but I'm sober. One thing I'm not is overpaid for this podcast. Oh, I was going to say, fine, (laughs) fine, fine. So well, that too, but we didn't, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to go down that path. All right, you going first? I thoroughly enjoy this beer. It's a delicious example of an Oktoberfest. It has something unique to it, which is that roastiness that I believe comes from the malt because it tastes grainy to me. But it's very clean and easy to drink. It's hearty, but it's not heavy. It's simply delicious. And um, I'm going to give it a 4.0. Wow. You know what? I am also going to give it a 4.0. Are you really? Yeah, I think it's probably in between a 3.75 and a 4, but it's on the high side of that. So because we don't have tents. I'm going to bump it up. I think it deserves to be bumped up, but I totally agree with you. There's a breadiness to it. You said grainy and I'm thinking bready. So it's the malts are providing that flavor, not a sweetness. It's not super sweet. Not sweet at all. I don't think I didn't get any sweetness. It's funny because I've had a lot of Oktoberfest and the related styles. Like everyone makes one. So I've had a lot of them and it's an easy like for me. I like that style of beer. But it's rare that one really stands out to me because they're similar. A lot of them are true to style. And the ones that aren't true to style, I tend to have something about them that I don't like. Oktoberfests, especially Mars and Styles, to me, falls in that brown ale, amber ale category where there's a sameness to them that, you know, I give them all three, seven, five. Yeah. I like them. 
I would drink them again. We've had a bunch this fall that have fallen outside the kind of standard parameters. And this is another one. This is a great example of that. So yeah, I'm all in on this one. So shout out to our friend Scott Brown there at Daft Cow. That's a really, really good beer. And uh, I think we featured Daft Cow in episode 55 when we talked about Bela Fleck and the Flecktone. Am I right? Yes, that was the flight of the Daft Cow. And that's and that's why we're having a leftover from there tonight. So where am I? I'm re, I got to reach in my cooler. Where am I going next? We're going back to New Jersey for not, it was not the season opener, but it was the first standard format episode, if you can call it that, because we don't have a format, <laughs> <laughs> which was Eric Hutchinson's Sounds Like This. And we're going to Glastown Brewing Co. in Millville, New Jersey for Clash of the Pumpkins. It has incredible can art of, is it Perseus? I'm not up on my Greek mythology enough to know who slayed the Medusa. So the, this is from the old Clash of the Titans. was a film, uh, 1980, 79, 80. It is that telling of the story. Perseus, I'm pretty sure it is. Harry Hamlin was in the film. Burgess Meredith is in it. It's a very bizarre film. But most of the creatures were done as stop motion by Ray Harryhausen, who I think we've talked about on the show before. That name sounds familiar. He did all those great stop motion things like Sinbad. And I think he did King Kong, but his career was very long. So he ended up going all the way up into the 80s doing stuff. And he worked on this film. And so this beer is called Clash of the Pumpkins. This may be my favorite label art of the season. This is fabulous. It's incredible. Because it's basically that character slaying Medusa and Medusa's a jack-o'-lantern pumpkin head with snakes coming out of it. And it's just fabulous. Medusa, the original angry woman. <laughs> and I've got snakes for my hair. <laughs> and the other one's given a peace sign. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So this on the can is described as an ale brewed with pumpkin spices at 7.2%. I did want to say about Glastown. Glastown was the first place that we saw beer mixing, like the beer cocktail thing that was happening where, you know, people would come in and ask for two different beers in the glass. They were doing their own sort of mixology thing. It was the first brewery I've been at where they were rimming the glass. And we have since been to other breweries who are doing those things. All this season, though. All this season. Yes. This season was the first time we had the puree mixing, the rimmed glass. I think Lot 9 was also doing the rimmed glasses. Um, Lot 9 did it. But prior to this season? We haven't seen those kinds of innovations. It's very fun for me. I, you know, I don't want to see beer drinking turn into cocktail drinking because they're different and they have different vibes but you can take like the best parts of cocktails and bring them to beer like rimming the glass i thought was super fun and putting the purees in you know it just it's personalizing the experience which is really fun and yeah that's all been this season i'll tell you the procurement story oh yes i would love that as folks who listened to that episode may or may not have recalled this is the brewery that is the closest to the house i grew up in in new jersey and your Uncle Derek goes there all the time because it's close. So I had to send your Uncle Derek on a mission. The first of two missions because yeah, he had to send say, me. Doesn't he have a jukebox coming up that he needs to provide the beer for? Yes. He sent me this beer for this episode. The beer was cheap. The shipping was not. And I went to send him money and he says, just send me something back. Oh. So what's in the file so far is many of the beers we're having tonight because I have extras. Cool. 
cool. That's awesome. So that's how this beer came to us in our leftover procurement program. All right. Let me crack this can. I haven't done that yet. I can tell you I'm a fan as you crack it open. What are you doing smelling that? What? Yeah, I was trying to see if it was fragrant. It's not. And when I taste it, I can tell why. And it's that the spices in there are beautifully subtle. This is pumpkin, not pumpkin pie. You get some of these pumpkin beers where the focus on all the adjunct spices takes it to pie level. (laughs) This is a pumpkin beer, not a pumpkin pie beer. There's spices in here. I'm not trying to say there's not. They hit you late in the sip. Yeah, this is pumpkin forward. Yeah, I think this is delicious. It's a really nice beer. Now, whether I can finish a whole tall boy of it or whether it's going to get too sweet for me. If you drink them all now, Sandra will be happy. Your boss. But (laughs) don't force it. She's going to say something to me when she hears this episode. Well, we don't know that it made it yet. Let's not get excited. (laughs) What I meant by that comment was the volume of beer matters if there's any sweetness to it, because too much sweetness for me get, you know, it starts to coat the inside of your mouth. And it's the reason I don't like full sugar soda. If this gets to be too sweet as the can wears on, that's one thing. It's in tall boy form. So that's a very real risk. Well, you're forgiven for that. Oh, is that foreshadowing? Maybe. Why do you say that? (laughs) Because, Dad, the next song that we're going to get to, track six, I believe, is called Forgiven. I sang hallelujah in the choir. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I confess my darkest deeds to an envious man. the song you mentioned earlier as the religious trauma song and again very reminiscent of the Tori Amos album right because she had all her religious trauma in that album I love this song and this song reflects what I think is sort of a trend on this album that I haven't mentioned yet which is that I think her second verses are stronger in general I think her first verses set up the context of the story and the second verses are where her really profound revelations all come through. For example, in this one, she has a couple of really profound revelations in the verse that I played. She compares her experience in the church to her brothers. So a very direct comparison between her as a girl and her brothers as boys and how they were treated in the church. The other one, and this is just uh, what I think is a clever line, in the name of the father, the skeptic, and the son, first of all, 
I'm sure you relate to that one, right? As a skeptic who grew up in Catholicism yourself. I could have written that line. <laughs> yeah. It's clever, but I think it even has sort of a second level of cleverness, which is of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I think people misunderstand the purpose of the Holy Ghost the most. Like, what the heck is it? What does it do? How is it different? To replace that one with the skeptic, I think, was very clever. Because I think for most children, the Father and the Son are relatively easy to comprehend. But the Holy Ghost and how nebulous it is might be the thing that sparks skepticism in children who are prone to skepticism. And so I think that was a very clever replacement there. I confess my darkest deeds to an envious man. Like, God, what a line. That's great. What a line. <laughs> because we know from history and facts that a lot of Catholic priests are truly evil and they have done terrible things. You know, it's not just one or two bad apples. It is an epidemic in the Catholic Church and the facts bear that out. And so for her to reference confession and her perception of the man she's confessing to, like, I just, uh, it gave me, that line gave me chills. And then I didn't play this line, but the question if I jump in this fountain, will I be forgiven? It hit me so hard. How can that, how can the simple act of dunking your head in some water, right? How does that equate to all the bad things you've done in life just being erased from the record, right? It's such a brilliant question. I believe that that is a question that a child would think of. It's not super theologically complicated, but it's a very valid question that a child could ask that could really shake their belief in their religion. It makes you wonder if it was a thought that she had. You can hear the things that she's been taught through all these years of Catholicism, mm -hmm. right? Especially in Catholic school. It's all the doctrine, you know, the dogma that you've been just force fed and even a kid is insightful enough to question that. But I believe that these are the types of questions that children would reasonably come up with. And that's what I think is so brilliant about this song, because it's clearly written from her perspective when she was a child. And let's be clear, that's as a child that's being indoctrinated. Yes. Into a, a philosophy without the choice of whether to be there or not. She brings that up later. Yeah. And I don't mean to tie that back to things that are going on in Florida with, we don't want to indoctrinate people on college campuses into science. With liberalism. Yeah. Right. Or wokeness. Yeah. But the great irony is that that's coming from a group that clearly indoctrinates children. This is Pops on Hops, where, where no one, one is one safe. safe. Yeah. And that's what this song is about. And that's why it's such a powerful song. The line is, we all had delusions in our heads. We all had our minds made up for us. Made up for us. Now, I do think that reflection is from the perspective of her as an adult. Yes, you can only look back on this and realize what happened as an adult. And that's my own story, right? Right. I got to a certain point with it. And I realized all the internal fallacies. and was like, this is not for me. Part of the reason I think this song is so impactful is because the verses seem like they're from the perspective of the child and the choruses seem like they're from the perspective of the adult who went through these things as a child. That's a good point. 
the points she's making in both the verses and the choruses are extremely insightful. But the verses, I think, are more powerful because that's the revelations she was having as a child who was in it. I would say revelations of an adult looking back on their childhood. You have to get a little more frontal lobe development to be able to look at that and go, why am I here for this? This is silly. So the perspectives in there are childhood perspectives viewed through the lens of being an adult who realizes the absurdity of it. Sure. I never went to Catholic school, so. And then once again, you can thank me. <laughs> thank you, Dad. <laughs> yeah. See, Abigail Hummel, I grew up without religious trauma. School of speaking school smartly of about religion. Not having uh, religious trauma. <laughs> All right, should we move on? And that brings us to track seven, which is also the title track of the album. And we will find out why. So here is You Learn. title track because it contains the line swallow it down what a jagged little pill and i love it when artists name their album after a line in a song as opposed to a song title itself it feels like a little easter egg when you find the lyric so that's why i like that but in this case i find it especially interesting because i think the phrase jagged little pill is a brilliant title for this album because it's all about the hard truths that she's learned. You learn from this song that that's the context of what Jagged Little Pill means, right? It's a hard pill to swallow. But it's interesting to me that that came from a song that is largely positive about learning those hard truths. So while the title of the album focuses on the difficulty of learning these hard truths, the song that that title comes from is more about sort of the silver lining of that, right? Like no matter what happens in life, all the positive things, all the negative things, you learn from all of them. Yeah, I wrote, I had a single note that I wrote, which was, it's a great song about taking chances and learning from your experiences. They may be positive experiences. They may be negative experiences, but whatever it is, you take something from that. You do better next time. You don't do it next time because it was bad, whatever. Right. And so I agree with you. It's got a duality to it that Jagged Little Pill as the title of the album tells you you're going to be dealing with difficult issues. Mm-hmm. 
But the point of this song is that you kind of have to. Yeah. You only grow if you face some of these things or confront some of these things head on. Yeah. So I agree with you. And of course, is so affirming mm-hmm. about that, the way it's structured. And I go back to my comment before about this is another one I lump into that Dr. Seuss kind of category of yeah. that chorus is very, you know, it's a sing-songy little chorus. It doesn't say a lot and it says a lot all at the same time, which I think is some of the most brilliant writing on the album is when it's that simple and that complex all rolled into a lump. And so, yeah, I think this is a really fun song. This was the fourth single, by the way. It was released in February of 1996. It peaked at number six on the Billboard Hot 100. So it's probably the third biggest single off the album. I had not heard this one yet. The other funny experience I had with this song was the first time I heard this song, I thought she was being tongue in cheek saying, I recommend getting your heart trampled on to anyone. Cause it's like, why would you wish that upon anyone? But then the punchline of the chorus is even if you get your heart trampled on, you're going to learn from that experience. You live, you learn, you love, you learn. But she makes all these recommendations that are like, I wouldn't recommend that. I recommend biting off more than you can chew to anyone. I sure wouldn't. That's a recipe for disaster. But that's because I've done that before and I've learned, right? (laughs) So I no longer make that recommendation. By the way, Dad, I recommend sticking your foot in your mouth at any time. Didn't I do that in the last episode? Many times. Yeah. And you probably (laughs) will again many times. But you have and have you learned every time? No, I keep doing it. Okay, Okay. Well, because if I didn't, we wouldn't have a podcast. Well, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I learned from the past, I would just shut up and nod politely. And I recommend that for you because you'll learn from that experience too. I'll tell you what's not a jagged little pill is beer. This is really good. Yeah, this is really good. Okay, let's go to track eight. The only love song on this album, Head Over Feet. You're the best listener that I've ever met. You're my best friend. Best friend with benefits What took me so long I've never felt this healthy before I've never wanted something rational I am aware now I am aware now You've already won me over in spite of me. And don't be alarmed if I fall head over feet. And don't be surprised if I love you for all that you are. I couldn't help it. It's all your fault. You've already won me over. So I had known this one previously you know why why because it was the fifth single released in july of 1996 okay this is my second favorite song on the album it's my on the cusp is it i think it's so beautiful and the reason why i think it's beautiful is because this reads to me as a love song for people who are cynical about love yeah absolutely it's very I didn't think I would ever love again, but here we are. And I would add that I think it's an internal dialogue. I'm not even sure she's sharing this with her partner. 
Yeah. It's like she's in the room with this person and having all these thoughts and not able to even voice it to this other person. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fascinating. Yeah. It's, gosh, I just think it's, I don't really vibe with love songs that are like traditional love songs. This feels like it was written for me. (laughs) It's the simple things in life that draw two people together. You're the best listener I've ever known. Yeah. It's such an incredibly deep line or deep thought to have Mm -hmm. in a relationship that has longevity to it. I've never felt this healthy before. Yeah. the, the, The lines in here are amazing. That's not about the other person. That's about how she feels when she's in the relationship. And that's the most important thing. Because if you're not looking out for number one, that's how you get into abusive situations. You know, I'm not victim blaming, but you have to be mindful and you have to be looking out for yourself or else you won't be with the right person. You just won't. And so the fact that she's acknowledging that she's never felt this healthy before is, I think, really just a beautiful way of phrasing that this is the right person for her. She's feeling her best. At the end of the first verse, she says the line, you ask me how my day was. And then the chorus starts, you already won me over. Yeah. (laughs) Simple things, right? Like two people who are sharing a life experience together. That's how they function. Right. So I was saying about it's not all fireworks, right? It's like the longevity piece is those kinds of moments. That's what makes it such a great, insightful love song. And It would have probably made my top three if there weren't so many powerful songs on this album. Because emotionally, this is probably a song that I am the most attached to in the whole album. It's so good. And the other lyric I wanted to raise was, Your love is thick and it swallowed me whole. You're so much braver than I gave you credit for. And I love that line, especially in this song, because like we said before, she's coming at this from a perspective of someone who's rather cynical about love. And she's being very cautious. Like all of this language in here is very cautiously optimistic, right? You've already won me over in spite of me, right? Yes. That's the greatest line in the song. I love that. I completely get it. I understand it. I identify with it. But she's saying here, you're not being cautious here. Your love is thick and it swallowed me whole. You're being completely wholehearted about this. And I find that extremely brave. I just love that acknowledgement that to love someone with your whole heart is brave. That's an act of bravery. And I love Love that she acknowledged that here. Even while she's saying, I can't be that brave right now, but I'm getting there because you are brave. This would be the candidate that I would put in track three because it's slow and fast Mm -hmm. and it comes off the antithesis of this thematically. And then you don't have that issue with the really slow song that doesn't seem to fit in that slot. So it's a potential. There might even be one that's better, but this would be a candidate. I hear you. I think this song would be much less powerful if you hadn't already had seven songs of challenges. By the time we're at track eight, this woman has been through so much and I'm so invested in her as a person that when this song comes on and she's finally in a healthy place, she's in a good place. I think that's part of my emotional attachment to this song is like she finally is catching a break. I was just saying musically and thematically trying to find something that bridged the gap from the raw anger and rocker that's in track two. 
I mean, I even think Forgiven could go there. Forgiven could go there, but Ironic could go there too. Yeah, and my comment on Ironic was going to be, I think Ironic is too late in the album. I think Ironic needs to be sooner on the album. That could work better at track three. Write this down when Alanis Morissette is on the show. Uh, Ask her if um, next time she does an album with this much power, if we can control the track list for Oh, okay. I'm sure. Question mark, question mark. (laughs) Question mark. I'm sure she would allow that. Okay, let's do track nine and then rate this beer maybe. Yeah, let's do track nine. Track nine is called Mary Jane. interpretation of this song is she's speaking to a friend who is struggling it seems with a variety of issues insomnia an eating disorder of some kind perhaps an abusive relationship seems to be physical abuse based on the line there's a few more bruises if that's the way you insist on heading but it's clear from this song that the narrator really loves this person and is trying to keep them out of the dangerous situations that they're in. The last verse, which I didn't play any of, is you're the last great innocent, and that's why I love you. So take this moment, Mary Jane, and be selfish. We're once again coming back to the, like, listen to yourself, like, listen to your gut, follow your instincts, be selfish. You're only going to survive in this world if you're looking out for number one, because at least in Mary Jane's situation, it seems like everything's kind of working against her. And she's falling victim to these external influences who want her to be a different person from who she is, right? Why are you losing weight? Do you ever wonder who you're losing the weight for? Is it some societal image of how you should look? Is it a partner who insists upon it? Is it an industry that you're working for that insists upon it? And I find this song very sad. It's towards the bottom, honestly, just because of how slow it is. But it's very specific and very sad and very profound. I love the line about, I hear you're losing weight again, Mary Jane. Do you ever wonder who you're losing it for? Because I think everyone who is looking to make a change in their appearance, at least, deserves to ask themselves that question. Why do you want to change your appearance? Like, why do you really want to change your appearance? Is it for you? Is it for someone else? Is it for your job? I think everyone deserves to have that degree of self-reflection before they go to dangerous lengths to change their appearance, whether that's via surgery or experiencing an eating disorder. 
because drastic physical changes are very dangerous and can be very unhealthy. And if it's not for the right reason, and if it's not done in a safe and healthy way, like it can be pretty harmful. So I I think this is a a really interesting way of of raising that issue, especially because like in the 90s, when this album was released, the trend was to be like extremely thin, like skeletal. Yeah. Heroin chic. There was a term, I think. Yeah. And the fact that bodies go through trends, especially women's bodies and like the shapes of women's bodies go through trends throughout history and how disturbing that is to think about. (laughs) Because like, we're all just trying to live out here with the bodies we have. Well, going back to the premise of the album, which is it's from a woman by a woman about women's issues. Exactly. We don't put that same expectation on men. Absolutely. So the fact that um, we can decide there was a trend in the 90s called heroin chic is disturbing in and of itself. And the fact that, you know, following fashion trends is one thing. You spend your money to buy a new wardrobe to be in trend. But if a trend is requiring drastic changes to your body, that's very concerning. Like now the the trend for the past few years has been these like extremely buxom hips and butts and women are dying from botched surgeries to enhance their hips and butts because that's the trend and women are dying to get that look. I've thought a lot about this. It's very disturbing to me. And so I I think that this is, as we've said with every other song on this album, a very insightful commentary on that issue, even though the time this album was released, the trend was very, very skinny. And so the comment is on that, but it's completely applicable to today. Well, it's my least favorite song on the album. Yeah. It's slow. It's third person. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I shouldn't say it's third person. It's about a third person. It's second person. <laughs> yeah. It's second person. Everything else was an internal dialogue and this is not, it just, I didn't find it very engaging story wise because of that. Cause I've been, I've been dealing with all these great songs about all the stuff that this individual has been going through. You may have a friend that's gone through a complicated thing and that's a great story as an individual, but it's super slow. Yeah. I wasn't going to use the bonus track. So it was between this and track three. And I thought the writing on track three and the fact that it was first person was way more emotional to me than this one. So I parked this one in the bottom. Yeah. And that's really fair. It's probably my second least favorite. This may be an esoteric reason, a Barry Hummel school of esoteric reasoning, but her voice sounds better on this one, in my opinion, than track three. And that's probably why it's not my least favorite. I agree with you. She's doing a slow vocal performance here that's better than that track three. But even the belting parts of this song, I think, sound better than the belting parts of track three. And again, that's where her strength is, in my opinion. So I moved the other one up for the writing and you moved this one up for the performance. But clearly these two are in the bottom third of the album for us. Yeah. And I agree with what you're saying. Like at this point, this is track nine. Now we've heard eight songs about this main character. I'm fully invested in her story at this point. Why are we bringing in another person that I'm not invested in, right? There's no time to care about her story, to get invested in her story. I'm invested in Alanis Morissette at this point in the album. Like, I don't care about Mary Jane. All right. Should we rate Clash of the Pumpkins before I we move I think so, because we've got a big finish coming we've, up here. Oh, we've got a big one coming up. <laughs> this is my favorite one of the night so far. 
but I am going to give it a four also. It's everything we talked about as it's warmed up. Nothing's really changed dramatically, except maybe the pumpkin's even more prominent. The spices don't overwhelm me. Really, really like it. This is well done. I'm going to give it a 3.75, which, as we know, is roughly equivalent to your 4.0 based on our individual rating scales. And agree with everything you're saying. The spices are beautifully subtle. It's quite pumpkin-y. I think it has gotten a touch sweeter as it's warmed, not to the level that it's bothering me. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy it. But I am extremely excited for the toll road one. Now, I have two toll roads in my cooler. We decided we we're doing the stout, right? The, yeah, the Pumpkin in sheep's clothing. A pumpkin chai latte stout. Yum. I love chai. I love coffee. I love pumpkin. I'm very primed to love this one. Coming back from the recording session of the last album, I stopped at Toll Road on my way home. They had two pumpkin beers on draft. I got both. So the other one's in my cooler if we're running late. But... You know, I popped in and they had them, nothing in the cooler. This was the group that can, will can any beer on draft in a 16 ounce can for you. And you could take as many as you want. I love it. All right. Cracked it open. They canned this very full. Oh, you have no idea. I watched them do it. Okay. This is awesome. I need to have another sip of this before I comment on it, but I find it delicious. I, um... I think this is really fabulous. It's chocolatey, which is not... You are right. I was not expecting chocolatey, but it is very chocolatey. And you know what? It's like Tootsie Roll chocolatey. So it's a roasty chocolate. Because you know the story on Tootsie Rolls, right? No. They were trying to make something else and they burned it. Are you for real? And then they tasted it. It was still okay. And that's how they invented the Tootsie Roll. Oh, get out. So when you say... It's Tootsie no. Roll chocolatey. Yeah, it's roasty. <laughs> it's it's overcooked. You just blew my mind. But now that you've said that, it is roasty. Which is not unusual for a stout. I'm not getting a lot of chai. No. And the pumpkin is subtle right now, but we'll see what happens as it warms up. Yeah. It's not quite what was advertised, but I thoroughly enjoy it. If the pumpkin pops as it warms up, I'm all in. I yeah. use as my benchmark for the pumpkin stout, Southern Tears Warlock. It's just a great pumpkin stout. I think we brought it up. Yeah, we brought it up when we talked to Jamie from Forgotten Boardwalk because she modeled her pumpkin beer after Pumpkin, which is also Southern Tears. Is that right? Yes. Pumpkin is the pumpkin beer and, and Warlock is the pumpkin stout. But I do want to say that. Somebody put out a list of the top 10 pumpkin beers of the year. Yeah, you sent me this. Was it the Food Network? Yeah, it was Food Network. Food Network listed the top nine pumpkin beers in the United States. And that beer that we talked about with Jamie and Uncle Steve is top nine. Which is amazing. So that's Forgotten Boardwalk. Wednesday is from Westfield. And uh, guess what else is on the list? Warlock. Warlock, which is why we're talking about this. Yeah. This is similar to Warlock. I think Warlock's got more pumpkin flavor. So we'll see if the pumpkin pops more. This is going to be very much in the Warlock category. So this is a really good pumpkin stout. Ironically, it's not Warlock. But ironically, <laughs> we have to move <laughs> to on work. to our next song. <laughs> see, is... now you misused the word ironic there, which is going to be a big part of this discussion. Uh, it sure is. And I think... We're going to have differing opinions on this, I believe. Why don't we hear the source material? This is track nine. Ironic. Used to play it safe. 
my favorite song on the album wow and how could it not be and you alluded to this but i spent a large part of my life looking down on this song because the internet had so many snarky things to say about how oh nothing in here is really irony like she's using irony the wrong way and black fly in your chardonnay what's ironic about that that's not ironic but what people are missing the point of when they say those things is the colloquial use of ironic is different from the ancient Greek, the theatrical use of irony, right? And the colloquial use of ironic, these scenarios are completely appropriate. And most of the people who are speaking snarkily about how these lyrics are not irony are men who are know-it-alls and are like, well, this is such a popular song, but guess what? She doesn't know what irony is. And I can't believe I fell for that male propaganda about this song because this is a freaking banger. This is an amazing song. The verses are very soft-spoken. And then the choruses just come at you like a freight train. And I've heard this song before, but I've never really listened to this song before. Oh. The first time that I heard that first chorus come on after her very soft, don't you think? And then she hits that belt on It's Like Rain on your wedding day. And I just lost my freaking mind. It's such a good song. And I cannot accept anymore the internet know-it-alls who comment on the fact that she's not using ironic in the right way because you know what this song is about. You understand what she's saying. Her message is clear. The song is about the randomness of life. That's what's ironic. Shit happens. Yeah. It's a series of things. There are some that are more ironic than others, right? He's 98. He buys a lottery ticket. He wins. He dies. Yeah. I bought a plane ticket for the first time ever, and that's the plane that crashed. Yeah. That's irony. But the more important general theme is that life's a random event. Yeah. You, it's not predictable. And the lesson through the course of the song is, so ride with it. Mm -hmm. And if you've not seen the video, I watched the video today before we recorded. It's in a car driving like a snowy road somewhere in the Northeast, probably Canada. She plays the driver, obviously. And then at some point, when it kicks to that thing you were just referencing, it goes to a person who's in the back seat that's also her, just in a different wardrobe and hairstyle. Fun. And eventually, there's four people in the car, and they're all Alanis Morissette. Mm. And it's so well done. And the irony is she runs out of gas at the end. Oh, isn't it ironic? <laughs> 
<laughs> to me, again, as a music video fan or as a fan of film as art, and we had a long discussion about that last episode, it's a single concept. There's no performance. There's no band. It's like she's playing this on her tape deck in her car. So it's just constructed well in a very simple way. So go check that out. It's really good. I saved it. I'll put it on our webpage. Yeah, I will 100% watch that. I love this song so much. And then my one beef with it is it's way too late on the album. I listened to the whole album being like, where the heck is ironic? That's way too late for the hit that it was and how good of a song it is. This was the third single, by the way. It was released in February of 1996. It peaked at number four on the Billboard Hot 100. This ended up being her highest career chart placement ever. She had two Grammy nominations for this song, but she had three Grammy nominations for You Ought to Know and won two of those categories. Wow. Including Best Female Vocal Performance and Best Rock Song in 1995 or 6. So the accolades came for You Ought to Know, but this is the one that performed more on the chart. And I think this is a more accessible song for the average listener. I think this is the more evergreen song on the album. All right, we're moving on to track 10. And track 10 is called Not the Doctor. I don't want to be the filler if the void is solely yours. I don't want to be our glass of single malt whiskey hidden in the bottom drawer. I don't want to be a bandage if the wound is not mine Lend me some fresh air I don't want to be adored for what I merely represent to guilt I don't want to be a babysitter, you're a very big boy now I don't want to be a mother, I didn't carry you in my womb for nine months This is probably my favorite song on the album. I think the insights and points she's making about the mental load that men put on women in relationships is they are just so incredibly spot on. Every single line she says in this hits hard. But some of my favorites are, I don't want to be your babysitter. You're a very big boy now. How freaking funny is that line? I don't want to be your mother. I didn't carry you in my womb for nine months. Like, God, like genius. And um, I don't want to be your idol. See, this pedestal is high and I'm afraid of heights. It's so good. And the other one is I don't want to be adored for what I merely represent to you. 
Like, I'm not a symbol. I am a person. My favorite line is, I don't want to be your other half. I believe one-on-one make two. So good. It's a very smart, insightful line. I find it difficult to believe that these were widespread topics of conversation that women were talking about in the 90s. I know that it wasn't that long ago, all things considered, but these are things I hear women say all the time. Like, this is very much part of the language of womanhood and feminism today. I find it very difficult to conceptualize a world in the 90s where this was like common parlance that women were talking about. And I that could be just the ignorance of living now. Listen, I think that women were talking about this. Sure. Amongst themselves. And I would like to make the case that Alanis Morissette was one of the first artists who propelled that into artistic discourse in a popular way. I'm not trying to give her credit for the fact that this discourse was more amped up after this album, because I think the natural trend would be that it would have to be. Of course. But I think that this is a part of the cultural zeitgeist of the women's movement. Yeah. That this is an artistic statement that resonated with a lot of women in the arts, like we talked about earlier, that many artists carried forth from this. But I can't take you back in time to what it was like before this album, you know, but we talk about the arc of history bends towards justice is what the phrase you always hear. And I think we were heading this way anyway, but I think this was a cultural touchstone that was a contributor to that. And I give her a lot of credit for that because that's why the album resonated with me. It stood out to me because I hadn't heard that voice before in music, in popular music, especially. I can only relate to this as an ally, but- Did this album make me an ally or was that always built into me? I can't answer that at this point. That goes back to what I was talking about with the earlier track, right? You may be well-intentioned and you may want to be on the right side of history and you may just not have the knowledge to know how sexism manifests and therefore how you can work against it, right? You may have heard this album and be like, oh, well, these are all the ways I am now aware that sexism manifests itself that you might not have known before. So yeah, like maybe this album did change your behavior, even if it didn't change your underlying mindset about the issues. But sadly, it was the angry song that brought me here. The one that you said was about, you know, a stalker. Not a stalker, but, you know, just some some questionable behavior. (laughs) Indefensible behavior, in my opinion. All right, let's move on to track 11. Track 11 is called Wake Up.
think I've been off by a track for several tracks. I'm really concerned about your ability to do this job. Because this is track 12. So <laughs> yes. who knows how far back yeah. my, my misnumbering has gone. You're killing me, Smalls. This song to me is perfectly fine. Musically, I like the choruses a lot. The verses I find just fine. The lyrics are not as easily understood in this one. This one is the most kind of nebulous or metaphorical. You know, I had trouble parsing if there was a distinct story here. There are great lines. In fact, my favorite one is one I played. There's no fundamental excuse for the granted I'm taken for. And I love that not only because... It's calling out a man again for his behavior towards her. But I think it's really an interesting twist to turn the phrase around like that. Yeah. Instead of saying taken for granted, the granted I'm taken for. I just think that's a fun play on words that I really enjoyed. So, yeah, I like this song, but unfortunately, I don't have that much to comment on about it. The only comment I would make is I think it's a great closing track. You didn't play the end, but the end of this song is a exclamation point for the end of the album. Yeah. For me, you end it here. You're 12 songs in. Pull the plug. That's plenty. That's plenty. <laughs> That's an album right there. Because the next song is a reprise of track two that the only reason you know there's a hidden track is because it's eight minutes it's long. It's an eight minute track <laughs> and you four minutes in then there's a gap and you're like, well, yeah. what's going on? That was very 90s to do that which is clever all right i'll give you that but yeah it doesn't match musically and the song is fine and it's an interesting take on something but i don't think you need anything else on this album i think you ended here and if you don't mind i can you play the tail end of this just so people can hear how the album ends i'd love to End the album there, please. Yeah, I love how that ends. I love how it would end a hypothetical album. When all the music cuts off and it's just her saying wake up at the end. What a great summation of the whole album. Wake up. Get woke, people. Oh, don't say that in Florida. Oh, They'll I'm come sorry, after you, especially at the University of Florida. Behave. This is Pops on Hops, where, where no one, one is one safe. safe. <laughs> the next song we accept as, oh, I'm going to redo this and you're going to have a different version. So that's like extra. And then the other things even hidden from there. So it's a lot of work from here out to me. It is. And I argue that the work is not necessarily worth it for that last track. I would argue the same thing. I didn't call it my least favorite because to me it's not technically a track, but it is my least favorite, really, because the average listener, it took me years to find it. Really? Oh, yeah. You know, if you're playing a CD in the car, the song ends and you pop the CD out, put the next CD in. Oh. It wasn't until I digitized it and went, why is this an eight minute track when oh. it's a three and a half minute song or whatever? 
That's really interesting because, you know, the hidden track thing, I kept saying it was so 90s, but that might just be an artifact of you have this digital media form where you can truly hide something. That's right. And only a subset of people are going to find it. And those people, in theory, are going to be rewarded by the little Easter egg that you've put in there. That's so interesting. It's only on the CD era stuff that it could actually be hidden and maybe missed. How interesting. So anyway, end the album here. Let me finish my beer. Can we call it a night? Now we have two more tracks. Well, sip on that beer. And I'll play a little bit of You Oughta Know, Jimmy the Saint Blend. I'm going to play the same clip as I played in the original. There will be a swear. But just so we can get a direct comparison of how the sound differs. that this is different from the original track is that there's one guitar that's mixed way louder and all it does is do long strums <laughs> like it strums and then it plays until it gets quiet and then it strums and then it plays until it gets quiet it's just like a, a it's a mixing thing i'm not sure the vocal performance is not the original vocal performance i, I don't hear much it sounds identical that. to me my note was it seems less polished so whatever the mix is it's a dirtier mix and her vocal performance is the same, so why bother? I don't think this is necessary. Which brings us to the secret hidden track, which doesn't have a title that I know of. I have it listed as Your House. Oh, Your House. Okay. It lists on my track list on Wikipedia, track 13, You Ought to Know, Jimmy the Saint Blend, and then slash Your House Acapella. So here's a little bit of Your House Acapella. I... Burn your incense I ran a bell I noticed a letter That said on your desk It said hello love I love you so love Meet me at midnight And no, it wasn't my writing I better go soon it wasn't my writing So forgive me, love If I cry in your shower So forgive me, love For the salt in your bell 
So forgive me, love, if I cry all afternoon. So to me, that song is like spiritually the sequel to You Oughta Know, or maybe not the sequel, maybe a prequel, because she's once again engaging in very questionable and perhaps illegal behavior. This one's really bad. (laughs) By breaking into this person's house when they're not there and she acknowledges that she shouldn't be there and it's implied that they've broken up at that point and she's just trying to be in his space trying to be close to him this is the other one where i'm not rooting for her because this behavior is not okay but her voice sounds so good in this one it's acapella of course and she still sounds amazing but Uh, it's so cringy. I don't condone the behavior. Yeah, because this was a hidden bonus track, I didn't rate it. But this is my least favorite song on the album, to be honest with you. It's unnecessary. It's creepy. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't think of it in terms of the prequel to You Oughta Know, but it's interesting that it's part of the same track. To me, this is like when she realized that he had someone else. Right, right. She finds the letter on the desk in the song, right? She's in there burning his incense and Mm -hmm. using his bathtub, Mm -hmm. and it's just very weird. Yeah, no, it's bad. It's bad behavior. (laughs) It's bad behavior, and it's not empowering (laughs) behavior to go back to what we think this album is about, and so why? Yeah, it doesn't reflect well on her. It's just... No. It's unwise. For what this album is and what it represents, and I've already made my case, I think this album represents a turning point for the voice of women in the arts. This sets that back. I would have not included this. I'd have found a different thing to put on here if you wanted to do this concept. You could have included a acapella version of You Ought to Know or an acapella version of another song on here that would have been interesting and a bonus track for the fans. Mm-hmm. and not compromised your women's empowerment album. Yeah, totally agree. And with that... Let's rate A Pumpkin in Sheep's Clothing. I'll start by saying I don't know that the pumpkin popped anymore at the end. I think it drinks very much here now that it's warmed up as it did at the beginning. Yes. I like it, but I'm going to give this a 375 because the pumpkin's not as strong as I would have liked for a pumpkin beer. If you told me I was going to drink a roasty stout, I'd probably give this a four. But when you tell me I'm going to drink a pumpkin stout, I'm going to give it a 375 because I'd like a little more pumpkin. Yeah, I'm going to give it a 375 as well for the same reason. I do want to say it was kind of named perfectly, right? Pumpkin and sheep's clothing. You get chocolate. So if there's pumpkin in there, it's certainly wearing sheep's clothing. So yeah, tasty, but not what I was looking for. So 375. All right. We've had our beers. We've had our album. Next up, just so we know, Uncle Derek's on with his jukebox selection, which is... um, He's the DJ. I'm the rapper. By DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, right. He's the drinker. We're the podcasters or something like that is the title. Very fun. So that's going to drop December 8th. In the meantime, if you need more Hops on Hops content, you can find us on all social media platforms, Facebook, 
X, Instagram, YouTube at Pops on Hops Pod, or you can email us at Pops on Hops Pod at gmail.com. Wherever you're listening to this, there should be a link in the show notes to leave us a voice message if that's something that interests you. Or you can visit our super cool website, Pops on Hops That's where we keep bonus photos and videos and other materials related to each of our bi weekly episodes. That is also where you can submit to our virtual jukebox for a chance for your favorite album and even your voice to appear on the pod. And on behalf of Hops and Pops, we'll see you next time. Boom, boom, cha, boom, boom, cha, boom, boom, cha, boom, boom, cha. It's pumpkin butter roasty. It's ginger but hot. It's chocolate but not shy, baby. And what it all boils down to is that every beer is just fine, fine, fine. Cause I got one glass in my hand now, and the other one is giving a peace sign. Bye. Everything is just bye, bye, bye. do this math right i feel like we didn't no you didn't do the math right you're way off was that track seven yeah okay we have seven more to go how did i do that so wrong i don't know you did it so own it you live you learn you count you learn okay so let's do two more let's do can we take a pee break please i just peed i'm good when i should wipe the chair down ew let's take a pee break